Hello there, and welcome to the Investigative Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Llewellyn Jones. We'll be covering stories published in investigativeeconomics.substack.com. And today's episode is all things uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. There's a lot of stories uh, we published on the subject, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. But first, a caveat, there's, you know, sort of a lot of details to a lot of these stories, uh, a lot of sort of in-the-weeds healthcare data stories, and just generally all the details of viral epidemiology and biology and all these other things. So a lot of the stories are actually sort of about the in the details. So we'll, we'll take it one step at a time. Again, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but we will uh, we'll, we'll tread lightly here. And first off, we'll start with the first story we published on the subject back in April of 2020. It was about um, at the time when there's these these announcements that deaths from uh, COVID-19, you know, especially in New York and New Jersey, were going crazy. I don't know how many fifty thousand at the time or so, based on based on my memory there. But actually, at the time, the quarantine had, you know, this is early on in the quarantine, it was actually driving down total mortality numbers that compared to previous years, that the number of deaths in April compared to 2018, 2017 was a good, you know, 30,000 less than it was for 2020. And which is kind of an interesting thing, although I will say that, you know, now looking back on it, that this story a lot of things have changed since then, and the numbers were based on CDC's provisional data. And so, you know, the numbers of uh, the reported numbers have, of course, gone through the roof. I think they're, you know, past, you know, a million at this point in, in, in COVID deaths and excess mortality, something ridiculous, or has been something ridiculous. I, I don't know where it is exactly right now. But that at the time, excess mortality was low. There was a negative excess mortality. And so, that and it, it's shown in the total total deaths up to that point. the The issue is that, and looking back on it now, is that it's just the CDC's provisional data on mortality is probably not reliable, or at least they should make a, a little more. They do give a warning that the provisional data is you know based on reporting and of of different states and different reporting outlets. So there is some caveats to the that data. And since then, you know, of course, the deaths have gone crazy. So it's you almost wonder, like, why they, they put the numbers out there if they're not nowhere close to being accurate for total total deaths, which is a pretty major statistic you want to look at. So, but one other, while that's sort of a criticism of the CDC's data, one note at, that came out of it was that, one other note that came out of it was that while the coronavirus deaths and incidents kept going. The reported numbers as the quarantine was put in place again from one state to another is that total flu numbers were actually going down pretty steadily over that time period. And the the sort of contrast to the flu is something that we'll come back to in a number of different stories. You know, there's a lot of people who are saying that, you know, what, you know, is COVID the same thing as the flu? But we won't get it into that necessarily, but we'll show a lot of side by sides that you know they're both respiratory de- diseases, so there are a lot of things in common, and there's some interesting things to when you look at them side by side. And while the flu, you know, the coronavirus kept you know kept going as the quarantine was put in place, the flu kept going down. And as we, I think, has been well established at this point, is that the flu essentially disappeared during that time. That when the quarantine and mask mandates and all that. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit further. But right now, we'll, we'll jump to uh, the next story, which is about the flu as well. 
is about how the numbers for the deaths from flu and pneumonia, this is prior to the pandemic, had gone through the roof. That in 2018, the number of deaths from flu and flu-related things. So they include a lot of, you know, pneumonia is included here, even though pneumonia can come from, there's bacterial pneumonia, there's viral pneumonia, there's pneumonia that comes from influenza, there's uh, pneumonia that comes from different viruses, and they kind of lump them all together. But essentially, the num- the deaths from all those, those sort of related causes just went through the roof in 2018, that there's over 14,000 died, as opposed to in the year before 2017, it was about 6,000. So, I mean, that's, 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 it, it doubled in a year, which is pretty crazy to think about. And, you know, why, why wasn't it getting any more, more attention that uh, compared to the coronavirus? And there's a lot of questions that, you know, that are, that are there about like, well, why didn't people, why wasn't it such a big deal? Why weren't they calling for quarantines then? And which is maybe a thing, but I mean, or, I mean, it depends on what you think about whether quarantines were excessive and, you know, issues are actually most of these people are suffering from these are largely elderly and maybe you just sort of treat the elderly. I'm not going to get into the sort of policy implications of these things. I mean, that's sort of what all this leads to, but I don't I'm not touching on that. We're just going through the numbers and sort of what happened. And I don't think this was something that was well reported at the time that, you know, that that 2018 had just a huge number of deaths uh, from this disease. And what's also interesting is that while 2018 was the the sort of the largest number of, of deaths, it was actually the high point for vaccine distribution pretty much across every age group that uh, and particularly, you know, those over 65, but essentially every age group in 2018 got more vaccines than the previous year. And if you go back to, it's been on generally, you know, it's not consistently uh, trending upwards, but you compare it to like 2010, like 10 years ago, it was, it's much lower that for those, you know, over 65, it, it was 68.1% of the population were getting vaccinated. And as opposed to in 2011, it was about 65%. Which is, you know, that's a lot of people, you know, when you consider the, just how many millions of, in the population are over 65, it's a lot of people. So that's gone up quite a bit. And, and you sort of think like, well, was, why, why wasn't the vaccine as effective? And now each year the vaccine is, has random effectiveness, you know, they, they're getting into all the details about why one vaccine works better than the other. And there's different vaccines each year, the quadrivalent version versus the non, the regular one. And, and, you know, was, was that a reason because the, the vaccines weren't working or is it something else at, at work? And, I mean, yeah, there's some questions there about, you know, what the best strategy was. I mean, it, it was almost like maybe it was a good thing that the coronavirus came along to help uh, quarantine so that it would stop more people from dying from the flu as well. Good timing there. I, you know, that's, I won't, I won't uh, uh, theorize too much more after that. But an interesting thing either way. Then we had another story on uh, Remdesivir. I think I'm pronouncing that right. That was the, uh, you don't hear about it much anymore, but it was this blockbuster drug being developed by Gilead Sciences. And it was originally developed as a treatment for Ebola. And this was going to be a treatment for the coronavirus. We heard about it a lot in 2020, 2021, a little bit. And that at a time, China said that it was going to patent the drug in China 
and so that they could sort of use it for themselves and spread it to the whole population. Sorry, it wasn't China that was doing it. It was the Wuhan Institute of Virology right at the center of, you know, the, the pandemic outbreak. And but and they, but actually what happened is that they actually never patented. They said they were going to patent it, but they never actually did. And what wound up being is that it was almost like a promotional thing for the drug that it got the name out there and it said that, oh, my God, China is about to do this. They're about to buy or produce this drug in massive quantities and spread it everywhere. But none of that was true, that it was just sort of all sort of PR and never actually happened. And the, the drug never shows up in the you know intellectual property a patent list for in China. And so it was that it was, it, this was a, big, a bigger deal at the time when the drug was in, in, in the news all the time. But now that it's kind of disappeared, that, that nobody thinks of it again. But you know, it is what it is. So, but and the next story, and these were two stories that sort of came back to back, was this uh, dispute over asymptomatic carriers. And this was also a huge thing at the time, was that could people who had the disease spread it even if they didn't have any symptoms? That is, you know, you're walking around, you test positive for the coronavirus. Could you, could other people get it from you? And at the time, the CDC and the World Health Organization completely differed on this, that, that, that the CDC showed an asymptomatic rate of about 35%. And also the World Health Organization had a much higher rate of 80%. And, you know, these organizations can have varying numbers, but that's a quite a huge difference in what they think the number of people who are asymptomatic with the same disease are. That's like, it's not like, oh, that's a percent off. That's you know, CDC has got over, it, it's, the World Health Organization is over twice the rate. They're saying that like, World Health Organization is saying like, most of the people are walking around asymptomatic with this. And so I, where are they working from the same disease or something going on there? And these are big issues because it's sort of like, well, who do you listen to? Do you listen to, you know, the US government organization, or do you listen to the World Health Organization, the you know, international one that probably has more testing and data from different countries. So they have more information. But well, I don't know if that necessarily guarantees that the World Health Organization is the, the better authority. Who knows? And that and the World Health Organization said there's been no documented asymptomatic transmission of the virus. That if you're not showing symptoms, you're not spreading it. Which is and the little caveat of like, you know, do I know enough about the biology? But that was sort of the understanding of that that's how viruses are distributed, that they you are the they're they're reproducing in your respiratory system and you're sneezing it out everywhere and therefore it's get that's how it reproduces. It's getting to everybody else that way. And if you don't have those symptoms, it's not like spreading. But I, then again, this is uh, cut myself off there. I, I don't know if that there's a lot of detail to that. That may not be there. Again, the World Health Organization says asymptomatic transmission doesn't exist. But the CDC, on the other hand, they're re- releasing papers in China saying that uh, saying that asymptomatic transfer was there. And, and there's a couple other there's a couple papers on this about symptomatic asymptomatic transfer, or sometimes they call it pre-symptomatic transfer of the disease, where, you know, maybe they they have the disease, but they're not showing symptoms yet. So who to believe? I mean, I, I think that question's probably gone back and forth a number of times. And where is it at now? I think they still think that, well, if they're pushing the mask mandates, then they're assuming that there is asymptomatic transmission. But 
And I think we'll see things change even more so as the mask mandates kind of disappear. I think at certain places, you know, the mask mandates have come back. They've taken them away again, come back again. Everything is in flux. And so who knows what's going on. But we'll continue on. A lot of ground to cover here. One is, the next story is about incidence rate of coronavirus. So again, this is an early early on story back in March of 2020, when the first, not just people, they were saying that, you know, lots of people were dying, but lots and lots of people were testing positive for it. What they didn't say at the time was the incidence rate was actually holding steady. So what is the incident rate? That is, you know, the number of positive tests over the number of tests taken. And that's actually the, the better metric to go by when you're doing a sort of number of tests. Because for in this situation of, you know, when you're taking sample populations, you can't take the, the number of, you can't take a test of the whole population at any one time. And so, because if you could take the test of the whole population at one time, that would be great. You would know how the exact number of, of that are out there. But instead, you want the, the rate of, for each sample to go because you're assuming that these samples are relatively random and that each sample is, 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 is a good sample of the population. It may not be, you might just find a cluster of people where everybody's sick or everybody's not sick, and it's not reflective of the total population. And in statistics, this is a sort of use of the central limit theorem, that if you take enough samples, that eat the average of the sample will approach the average of the total population as, as, it, as you take more samples, more people are tested. So you know, you meet one sample, you might get, uh, you know, 100% in one sample or have the disease, but in the next sample, there might be zero. And in the end, it kind of averages out. It gets closer and closer and closer. So if you keep, you know, if the number of people who test positive keeps going exponentially up, well, you have to take into consideration, like, how many tests are you taking? Are you taking, might be, what if you're taking, you know, a gazillion tests? And so you only get, like, so let's say, I'll back up here. Say, you say you get a, a million people test positive for the disease. But how out of how many? Is that out of uh, 2 million? Or is it out of 100 million? which then it's not that many people having the disease relative, you know, this is, you know, sort of all relative to, you know, what we consider a high rate of the disease. We're not getting into that right now, but if, if it's out of, you tested a hundred million and, or sorry, you test uh, 1 million and 1 million to come out positive, that's, that's a lot of people who are sick. And so at the time, the incident rate was holding steady. And it was only about, it stayed around between less than 20%, at most 15%, and sometimes down to 10%. This is through March of 2020. That has changed since then. The incident rate has gone up quite considerably. You know, I don't know what the, the sort of takeaway from this is sort of that using, it, it's something to think about in the future. And they don't, I think a lot of places are publishing the incidence rate and something to look for when data is published on health testing like this, that that is the, the better metric to go by. Um, I think the incident rate has gone up. Who knows what's changed since then, but that is the, the better one to, to go by. And when looking at state by state, you, you, the incident rate was kind of all over the place back then, that New Jersey had super high incident rates of like, at a time, it was like over 80% 
of the, and this is based on, you know, what samples they were taking. I mean, things were just kind of going up and down all over the place there. Whereas other places like Virginia at times was like 5% through, through March of 2020. There's, this is, you know, healthcare testing. Again, there's a lot of details to, you know, how the tests were done, how many tests were done, how, which populations they selected to test and how accurate the tests were. And uh, there's some issues with negative and uh, negative rates and po- false negative rates and false positive rates. But we'll say one other part of the story was that, that, that the tests at the time, they didn't actually have a, a marketable test that they were working from a uh, emergency use authorization, use authorization for the public use at the time before they could get a full FDA approval. But, you know, since then, of course, there's been tons of tests have been uh, approved and everywhere, PCR tests, the rapid tests. But at the time, the if you looked at the, the, the statistics for like how these tests were, how accurate these tests were, that they were all showing 100 percent accuracy, which which is interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that the, the tests are inaccurate. I, I don't know the sort of contrapositive or anything like that about this. But in general, healthcare tests like that are never 100% positive, nothing's 100% positive, that, you know, rapid influenza tests, their sensitivity, the ability to predict positive results are between 54 and 95%. It does get up there, it gets into the 90, 90 something percent. But 100%, that's, I mean, what in this world is really 100%. And there's a, there's some issue about that one of the scientists developing the rapid test was left the country after an investigation about, was related to the China Thousand Talents program. Which doesn't really mean anything. I think if you know it, uh, things about the Thousand Talents program, it's all sort of that's a huge mess, and the FBI is like arresting academics that are related to it. It doesn't really uh, necessarily mean anything, but it's an interesting anecdote that's that's on on top of all of that. So, you know, as as I mentioned, uh, the first story is that the the mortality estimates were super low in the beginning in April of 2020, and that's eventually it picked up that they their the cdc's provisional data maybe they fixed all the problems that they had with it but they were eventually this is may of 2020 were in line with previous years that essentially that we were at that that was a time of zero excess mortality that it had gotten up to 2018 2017 sorry 2017 through 2019's average mortality for that time period so they fixed, maybe they fixed something or who knows what happened, what's going on there. And again, the CDC's provisional de- death counts were probably quite sloppy early on, which is, you know, if if that is truly the issue, that is something that needs to be rectified. That in general, if you know the CDC's data, that in general, they, they it waits, there's three years before mortality data comes out. That right now you can get mortality data for 2018, that detailed mortality data, that is. And that's where it had, you know, the cause of death. And it takes the time to actually really get that, that information. You kind of understand why they want to get an accurate description of what causes this person's death and, you know, where it happened and all these other details that it takes a little bit of time. Three years seems a little excessive for that. But then when it comes to this situation where, you know, you need to make quick policy decisions, three years seems like a lot. You know, if there are a lot of people dying again of some other monkeypox or whatever it is, and we just didn't know how many people were dying, that you had to just go on anecdotal data, then then that would just not be tenable. I mean, we'd, you'd have to go on something. And if you had to go on inaccurate data, 
that that causes a lot of problems. And I bet you it caused a lot of problems at the CDC at the time. So hopefully that's something that will be rectified or who knows exactly what the full story is there. I, I imagine there's actually more to it than that. And yet the CDC does, you know, put out this, these these concerns about the lag in time between when it's submitted to the NCHS and how it's reported. So I, I just want to make sure that's out there, that they, they did know that there's a lag time in there. But we're still, it's still worth noting about how the discrepancies here because they're quite substantial. And then uh, we're getting into a story on the vaccine, the reports of the vaccines. In general, right now, I think everybody's said that the vaccines have been successful. And you know, who knows the other factors in driving down the COVID uh, virus. Or, but in general, the people who've taken the vaccines seem to be happy with it. There haven't been a lot of people dying from it. At the time, though, when they started reporting the, the vaccine trials, they were reporting success rates, and this is for Pfizer and Moderna, of success rates of 95 and 90% uh, respectively. I mean, which is, that's great, you know, that, that's, that's a very successful drug that they've, they've developed here. And they did it in such a short amount of time, which, of course, there's a lot of questions about how they're able to turn that around so quickly that, you know, I think there's some backstory to what was going on there. But the, the concern about that, and this is, maybe it doesn't matter so much anymore because I think there's been people have considered it a success. But at the time, they were going on, they were getting, trying to get approval for the vaccines based on a really small placebo recipient trial. Let me explain a little bit further. Lots of people were in the, the clinical trials for these vaccines, but, and they were very you know, strict, you know, double-blinded trials, equal splits, all these other things that, you know, that you want for the gold standard in clinical trials. But when you, what you do, what you want is you want a lot of people who actually will test, uh, that actually have the disease Otherwise, if you're just testing people who don't have the disease, you don't know if it's curing them. And in, in one of the tests, 169 placebo recipients would actually have the disease, and, and only nine vaccine recipients did. That's just not a lot of people to sort of determine whether the vaccine is effective or not. That like, well, you can tell like, well, the vaccine didn't you know have any bad effects and things like that. That's also good to have. But if you're only essentially you're only seeing if nine people you know recover because of the vaccine, then it's not it's a very low powered test. Low power mean it just doesn't it's not just the numbers just in general aren't very high to say with a lot of strength that like no this is really working. And and while maybe that doesn't matter in the sense of like well the vaccine does seem to have turned out to work for everybody everybody's happy with it. But in the future, that's not a great thing to go by. If, if the FDA has to approve drugs based on very small amounts of people having the disease that they can base it off of working, then, then they would just approve everything because you don't need that many people. There's lots of, with nine people, that's, there's not much to go on. And there's also an issue where uh, a lot of the, the demographics of the people in the trial were all below, you know, below 55, whereas sort of the biggest issue with the coronavirus is it's mainly people over 60 that have the disease that are really suffering from it, that are, might be dying from it. I mean, that's maybe that's an issue with clinical trials. That's hard to get more elderly people to sign up for them. But I mean, that is that, that sort of undercuts some of the, the, again, the power of the trial is that of you're not looking at the demographic group that you're actually want to target for the 
for the for for the vaccine. And that you know that's when compared to that that's mainly for the Moderna and the Pfizer one. That the AstraZeneca one was a, a different deal. That and it, it only showed a seventy percent effectiveness as opposed to like ninety ninety five for the other ones. But the infection rate was a much more was was much more reasonable. That one point seven percent of the of the placebo population had was infected with the disease, which is in line with the the general population of what about one point seven percent were in the general population were getting the coronavirus. So that kind of lines up as opposed to the number who were, had the disease in the Pfizer trials was like really, really small. It was like, you know, less than 1%. And you're sort of like, where did they get these people from if they're not, these people were like maybe living on an island that were sort of totally separated from the general population and therefore not going to get the disease. Um, And so the AstraZeneca one, maybe the vaccine wasn't as effective, but their clinical trials seemed to be more believable and reasonable and again, this is sort of like, you know, maybe it doesn't matter now, but sort of like for standards of clinical trials, you know, that's there's something a little funny that happened there. And in general, that the, the FDA has an efficacy threshold of about 50%. So they're all, everything's above the efficacy, uh, efficacy threshold. They're all doing well for that. We, there's, there's some other details about just sort of the, you know, if you, you take a, a chi-squared test on that sort of the placebo sample, it's it's, it just doesn't, it's not sufficiently, it doesn't seem like the placebo group was part and the vaccine groups were distinct from each other, that they were, that there's something up with those, the, the numbers there. So I, I, one little detail about Pfizer is that, you know, they were kind of, uh, Pfizer and Moderna were like the biggest ones. Johnson Johnson, everybody was just like slagging on them that it wasn't as effective. Nobody wanted to take it. Although you can take it in just one shot, which is, I think, a, a huge positive for some folks rather than having to get two. But Pfizer was kind of like leading the pack all over the place. I don't know if they got more of their, their uh, vaccines out to a larger part of the, the population. And that, you know... They were not, although they were not part of the warp speed initiative, you know, put up, put out by the White House to sort of like, you know, take all this government money to sort of like really boost the, the vaccine development and distribution. But that's actually not true, that even though they were saying they weren't taking money from the government, they get a ton of money from federal tax credits and, lo- and local and state as well. They get a lot of loan financing, bonds. And uh, they get a lot of federally financed medical research that, that sort of the, all the, the research that NIH does, a lot of it ends up in Pfizer's hands that they use to develop drugs with and that sort of thing. They're also, if, if you know, it's a contentious thing, but Pfizer, a lot of corporations do this, but Pfizer is very well known for its offshore tax status. And it does this complicated thing where it, uses, it has residency in another country Ireland, and then it's, but it's, that owns the other companies and does, it's like, there's all these, these ones like a Dutch sandwich and Irish, I forgot what it's called, an Irish cheeseburger or something like that. Who knows what it's called? But, you know, and they use, especially when they do these massive mergers, when they took over Allergen, and AstraZeneca, I, I don't think both of those went through, but, you know, it helps out when they're, you know, Doing this when they are located offshore, it helps a lot when they do the mergers. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, it's the allergen one that was abandoned when the U.S. Treasury started putting their putting their thumb on the looking a little tighter at inversions and how these these Irish sandwiches are set up. You know, there's Pfizer also has a lot of in, in deferred taxes from the uh, the mergers. 
and it's like they posted an overpayment in taxes of 770 million. So yeah, not that they're not paying taxes that, but the government owes them millions and millions of dollars. There, there's a, there's a whole bunch of ones. We can go down the details about just like, no, Pfizer gets a lot of money from the government. It may not be directly, they may not be getting a you know huge lump sum, but it's all in these sort of complicated tax and, and loans and all these other ways that they get tons and tons of money and they were able to, you know, that helps them develop the vaccine. I mean, I, to the scale, I mean, I, I think everybody's looking positively on them at the moment, but I don't know if you think about all the money that they've gotten from it, maybe it's not the, <laughs> maybe people shouldn't be as positive about it. And that's once the, in 2019, when the, you know, the Trump administration helped push through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and that lowered the to- corporate tax rates. That was one of the first times that they actually brought their money back into the U.S. And they made a tax payment after you know after the government was owing them for so long. They finally, a lot of their based on the mergers and things like that, that they started owing the government for once. And then they repatriated their money to the U.S. And they and a seven hundred fifty million dollar payment was made in twenty nineteen, which is. That's a lot. It's just a lot of money. And then there's contracts. There's a 14 billion in contracts. I mean, it's just like it's it was ridiculous for them to say that. They're just it's such a bald-faced lie. But moving on. So, uh, another one that's sort of tangentially related to the coronavirus was and it's not it's not about the coronavirus necessarily, but but sort of getting back into the background of what ha- what what the situation was like before the pandemic was that that the elderly population had was starting to was flattening off before in the years right before 2020, and that that was not expected whatsoever. That estimates were assuming that you know the baby boomer generation was is just getting older and older, and that the the, the population which you know increases year over year just as the population gets was just going to continue and and get higher and higher until it would plateau in uh, 2035. Not so. In about 2017, 2016, it just stops. The, the the growth in the elderly population just stops. You know, we talked a little bit about you know deaths from flu and pneumonia, and those had been growing in in in, in, in later years or in recent years. But this is the big spike in the deaths of pneumonia was in 2018, and this is before that. So, and it, it the flu and pneumonia deaths don't account for this. That a number of people are just the, the the population was dying off very quickly, and why is that? Uh, story doesn't really we don't exactly know what the story with that is. I feel like that actually is a story that we could come back to, but it is quite dramatic. And that if you look at you know what's an interesting sort of I don't know exactly what this means, but when you add back in the numbers of the of of that have died over sixty five that have died from the coronavirus, that essentially the over 65 population is back to where it w- would have been if it had been continuing at the same rate it had been before 2016, 20, uh, 2015. That that the number of people, that a uh, number of over 65 people that have that are no longer there is the same number as that have died from the coronavirus. But then again, that it's something that started in 2016, 2017. What that means is, I, I don't know. It's almost a, is that coincidental? It's hard to say. You know, 
it really, the census really did believe this is a 2020 report from the census saying that, that longer lifespans, low fertility rates are leading to, uh, are, that's what's creating the larger aging population as a percentage of, of the general population. But yeah, 2030, that's when that was supposed to happen. But if you look at social security data, that's a little bit different that social security data has been that that seems that didn't tail off in 2017 or 2016 at all. And the, the social security recipients keep growing and growing and growing as only since until 2019 or 2020, sorry, with the coronavirus pandemic that you see the number of recipients in social security just drop off. And that makes sense that it's right where it should be. So almost like that one makes sense, but the census doesn't make sense. You'd think this census data would be more accurate because census is there, you know, there's a, the number of people who get uh, social security, the participation rate is about 82% and that can fluctuate. You don't know who's getting uh, social security. You don't know if they're, you know, people are getting it and they should be getting it, even though they're above 65 or people who have died and there's, you know, the checks are still being sent out. So that you think that the social security data is like, that's totally inaccurate. But in fact, the social security data almost seems to like line up with, oh, no, the population was continually growing until the pandemic, and then it drops. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I tend to think that the census, that they are just, you know, that, that they are more accurate in general when I'm working with data and government data. But there's a lot of questions that this this story brought brought up. In general, you see that, like, just as an anecdote, that Social Security participation has been declining for the over 65 population. That it was about eight, oh, it was almost 83 percent back in 2013. Now it's down to 82 percent. Why that is, you know, that, that's not a huge drop, but it's something to take, keep in mind when sort of working with Social Security data. Moving on. Nursing home deaths. We've talked a lot about sort of, you know, the mortality rates of the CDC early on, that, that their numbers were all over the place, way below, even though they're saying that there should be this excess deaths from this new new disease coming out. But nursing home deaths are another part of that, is that the, while nursing home deaths, that's like, you know, that's the center of it all. That's like where people are thinking that all these people who are in nursing homes over 65, those are, those are, those are the folks that are getting hit by the pandemic the, the hardest. You know, the death rate there is much higher than uh, younger populations. And and there's a, you know, contentious about, you know, what's happening with these nursing homes. 65,000 deaths in since uh, May of, between May and November in 2020 were, were in uh, nursing homes. And that the AARP said that about 40% of all the deaths were, of those 65,000 deaths were in nursing homes. And there's going to be lawsuits, increased regulation, and new changes in Medicaid about how the nursing homes are reimbursed. And, and the CDC put out a new guidance for nursing homes for people who are at high risk for uh, COVID-19. And it, like in one week alone, 82,000 people died. In, and this is May of 2020. And that's way above any any single month ever previously recorded in CDC data from going back to 1998. It's over double some other months. And that's just in one, the last week of May. That's not a total of May. But that is, but since after May though, the numbers drop off. So in May of 2020, that is. And that since then, the number of deaths in nursing homes were way below the average for the last 20 years. That uh, 
10,000 fewer deaths in uh, September than the previous year in 2019. September 2019 to September 2020, 10,000 fewer in 2020. That's with the pandemic, the, the quarantine in you know full operation, and that's a quite a, that's a large discrepancy right there. If you look at you know the uh, number of nursing home deaths each month, and you'll see that like besides 2020, almost every year it's like almost in line. There are no aberrations. It's like each year it's at the same rate. It goes up, it goes up in June, goes down in July and August and September and October, and then it goes up again for the winter months, and that the it was very consistent, except for 2020. And then, if you take out the actual the number of deaths of the over 65 population or the nursing home deaths from the total number of deaths, you take the number of deaths due to coronavirus in nursing homes from the number of nursing home deaths. You'll see that the number of it's even lower than it, way lower than it should be. So that, like, assume that there was no coronavirus. That, that the number of people in nursing homes were just, nobody was dying these months, which is very interesting. That, so that, that uh, maybe it's the, just, you know, an effect of the quarantine that like it was very successful in stopping people from dying. Maybe that's a thing. You know, we're also seeing in other places where just the number of deaths just are way below what they should be. And, you know, maybe this is something with the quarantine that, like, it is very successful in keeping people alive in certain situations. I mean, I think there's something funny about the numbers that, like, you know, like, that's, that seems like way, way, way below um, that. But, you know, there might be something more to what's going on there. And I've also mentioned before about the CDC's inconsistent data that, oh, you know, you know, preliminary mortality estimates are much lower than what they should have been. And they've revised everything. But another aspect of it is that, you know, even though after the CDC seems to have, you know, the, the data seems to have changed dramatically and is more in line with what's being reported about, like, you know, the excess mortality is way crazy, that, you know, more people are dying, which is showing that, you know, the signs of the COVID virus is, you know, leading to this excess death rate. But even then, when you look at a state by state basis, that the, the CDC didn't have 100% of each state's data. For certain states, yes, it had it. But for certain states, their 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 reporting rate is was low and that what they have is called an expected death percentage. Let's say like for like Kentucky that let's maybe a better example is North Carolina was in like the number of deaths they had reported so far was like about 60% of what they would expect for the same time period. So it's way low. So they're still saying like, oh, not that many people have died this year, even though we've got all these people dead from the coronavirus. So, and you're sort of saying, well, you know, you know or, or maybe a lot of people are dying from the coronavirus, but they're not dying from anything else. Again, this might be a flu related thing that, you know, they're dying from the coronavirus, but they're not dying. The, the people that were dying from the flu would have died from the flu aren't. And that if you if they were to get back up to 100% of their ex- expected death percentages from coronavirus or something else, then that would affect the totals, total deaths, total mortality death, or, or you know if it's from coronavirus, the total COVID deaths, a lot more. So that say like everybody was back, it was up at 100% of their expected death percentage, no more, no less. Then there would have to be an additional 30,000 more deaths based on, based on that rate. Hopefully I'm explaining that clearly enough, but essentially that 
you know, yeah, if, if everybody was at a hundred percent reporting, then there are a lot more people would be dead is, is what it is. So again, th- that could be a flu related thing that the flu kind of did disappear, you know, and that's, you know, not as many people were dying from that. And so there, those, those states, their expected death percentages aren't going to get up to a hundred percent. Some places it was like way over a hundred percent, you know, it was like New York city at a, a point was over as like 200 230% of their expected death rate. You know, New Jersey is another one like that, like just way off the charts. So yeah, it flew data reporting issues. Hard to say. Another part of the sort of nursing home data aspect is occupancy, nursing home occupancy that during this time, the number of residents in nursing homes has fluctuated dramatically. The number of people in, in beds in May just went up, uh, spiked, it went through the roof, but have declined since then. And that could easily be that, like, you know, a lot of people are getting sick or you know, a lot of people are going into nursing homes just because they need the treatment or something like that. There's also the reporting, of, you know, New York City, New York mandated that, you know, nursing homes couldn't turn people away because they had COVID. And maybe this is a, a chance for them to be like, here's our chance to get into a nursing home. Everybody's going in. Who knows? Yeah. And that was at the Cuomo order that was very contentious. And people were saying that like, that was a huge mistake because nursing homes are where so many of the deaths were occurring. And that, and, but since then occupancy in the, the, in the nursing homes has steadily declined. It went, it went up to like, it was over, one point, it was almost 1.2 million. And then it's now it's down to about like 1.1 million and and some change. And that's, and this is all back in 2020. So it would be, we may do some follow-up stories on all of these because a lot of things have changed so dramatically. And you really wonder if like, well, if the data is kind of funny, maybe data will be changed, updated a few different times. But an interesting thing about just, well, let's move on to the next one here. Here's a, here unanswered questions from the pandemic. Here we just went over a number of things that these weren't full stories, but uh, sort of outstanding questions where the data was anomalous, and I don't think there's a good answer for. You know, these are questions like, well, where did you know where did the virus come from? Was it from a lab? Nobody has a good answer for that one. And we've talked all about a lot of these stories are sort of unanswered questions about preliminary deaths, deaths rate, the effect of the flu, elderly populations, elderly population death rates before the pandemic, nursing homes. And of course, the big one, as I've mentioned already plenty of times, is the disappearance of the flu. It went down to almost zero, that about 3,400 people would test positive for the flu in a week. And in the 20 to 21 season, it the, the highest it got was 566 in December of 2020, which is nothing. I mean, you know, everybody has the flu in the winter. Just, you know, maybe you don't, maybe it's not the flu, maybe it's cold, you don't really know, but it it's, it's everywhere. It's reported to be everywhere. And in 2018, there are 1,600 flu deaths in one week. So more people were dying of the flu than, than getting it. More people died of the flu in 2018 in a week than got the flu in all of 2020, in each week of 2020. At most, there were 44 deaths in the 20, 2020 flu season. And it's, people say it's been, you know, mask requirements, social distancing. Certain states saw the flu disappear without having uh, mask mandates. So it doesn't make a ton of sense. But 
No, I did. There's a couple of stories about mask mandates, but I'll add a lot of caveats to that because it was so hard to get numbers on mask mandates about like, well, so they have a mask mandate. Does that mean everybody is adhering to it? Is that really are, how sufficient are they enforcing it? It's hard to say for sure. I, I feel like there are too many caveats to really say too much about mask mandates and their effectivity. I mean, you feel like there it, something happened there, but then again, there's there's been you know these research coming out saying that the mask didn't do anything, which I, I you know I'm not going to speak to right now. COVID hospitalizations are actually that are below that of the flu or far above it. That's, you know, just the number, the how many thousands of people, millions of people died from COVID as reported. And that's far more than die from is the flu each year, which and the flu, it's about 40,000 to 100,000 a year die of flu and pneumonia related diseases. And that, you know, we've heard all these anecdotes about hospitals being overwhelmed by COVID patients, but the hospitalizations, CDC data on hospitalizations are way below that of the flu. That hospitalizations in 2017, 2018 for the flu were about, it was over 800,000 and COVID led to either 776,000 based on the COVID tracking projects data, uh, 185,000 from the COVID net data or uh, which is uses laboratory confirmed tests or 5.6 million based on CDC modeling data, which I think that, you know, I, it's hard to say for sure about any of these things, but I feel like that, that CDC modeling data is just, that's just, it's, that's way ridiculous. That's not right. And it's a bit more of it's, it's more complicated data set that it's, it's modeling data. It's based on it's not just simple, you know, reported numbers with maybe some adjustment or something like that. They are sort of sort of forecasting based on the sample data that they have. And they're without knowing all the details of the model that you can't say if it would be better to it would be it would be helpful to know how that model is created to say how they get to that five point six million dollar. 5.6 million hospitalization number. And using the if you use the COVID tracking project data. The deaths per hospitalization would be about 77%, which is substantial, but and might be reasonable. Although for the flu, it's about when you take the number of people who die from the flu in a year, it'd be about 61,000 taking one particular year over the number of people who were hospitalized, which is over 800,000, as I mentioned before, and that's 8%. So while that the COVID numbers might seem right for you know, how drastic the disease has been reported to be. I mean, that's a huge death rate. If you go, if you go into a hospital for COVID, that sounds like you have a high chance of not coming out of there as opposed to the flu. You know, it sounds like a lot of people go in and and most people are, are fine and, you know, just get some treatment and leave. I mean, this isn't sort of an open question, but it's sort of like, you know, for the policy one, and this one's pretty well known, is that the death rate for COVID was 1.8%. It, and it largely affected the elderly. That, as we all know, that, that younger populations really didn't need to worry about it, that a lot of those restrictions, it, you know, there's a lot of concerns for the elderly that if you, you, know, if you get these diseases and you're, it, and you're in the elderly population, it is a major concern. But you know, if you're not, then you know, 
though a lot of things change for that. I won't get into the po- policy repercussions for that. And again, this is something that's well known at this point about you know whether there should be such major lockdowns for extended periods of time just like that. You know, maybe there'll be short-term lockdowns just to make sure that things don't spread as much. But, you know, two years of seems like pretty excessive for for the situation. Again, I'll, I'll cut myself off there. This is a big one, is that certain countries didn't experience the pandemic until late in 2020, and a lot of them seem to adjust their numbers retroactively. That And this is from, this is actually something somebody else discovered and that I was the investigative economics was reporting on is that it wasn't until like the 40th weekend or so around October that countries like that a lot of Europe started actually reporting, showing numbers of, of deaths, of reporting of deaths from COVID. This is based on human mortality database uh, numbers. And this is, this, this includes Germany, Hungary, Norway, Luxembourg, Denmark, Austria, Finland, Greece, and Poland saw no discernible change despite uh, massive death numbers in their neighboring countries like France, Spain, Italy, England, and the Netherlands. Those those countries like France saying like, oh, everybody's dying from this disease, but Germany is like, what disease? I mean, they weren't saying this in press releases, but they were saying this is in their their mortality data. You know, maybe I'll I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that this is a data issue that they just... Weren't, it wasn't being reported accurately. And, and this is like total mortality. This is not saying uh, related to COVID necessarily, but just sort of saying the number of people who are dying from COVID or dying in general, it hasn't gone up. We haven't seen a spike in deaths because pushed along by a, pa- a pandemic. Eventually, those countries would update their numbers and you would see spikes all at the same time, same as France, Spain, Italy, and England. So do they revise their data for what reason or another. I, I would say that I think that that may not apply to all of the countries. There's certain countries like Sweden would, would have their data revised. I don't, I don't think all of them did revise their data. The number, the, the disappearance of COVID-19, I mean, it's not completely gone, but it's, it's, it disappeared quite quickly in that it, you know, in 2021, in mainly in the summer there. And why did that happen? It doesn't seem like it was sort of correlated with the mask mandates. I mean, that's what it's being attributed to, but the the timing doesn't seem to uh, work out like that. You know, there's a lot of details to how things are reported. Maybe there's a timing lag, it, it, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense that it just kind of dropped off. You know, the mask mandates were there for quite a while and you'd think they would tail off gradually as the mask mandates take hold and the social distancing and the shutdowns and everything like that. But it, it wouldn't, kind of dropped off dropped off a cliff and that doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. Some states never had a mask mandate that still saw an absence of flu and a spike in covid. I already gave my caveat about mask mandate data. I mean I, I think it's still a question that's out there, but tracking that one is is it's a hard one and from a data perspective there might be a way to do it to analyze it from a surveillance perspective, but still an open question. There's a for child children the mortality there's a mortality decline throughout 2020. People thought there would be an increase in child mortality because of missed vaccinations and reduced prenatal care and everybody's isolated. But maybe social distancing helped. People are living longer, including kids. Don't know what the story is with that one. The 
adverse reaction, the VAERS data, that's the, the sort of this giant database of reporting on adverse reactions to vaccines. That's all over the place. And I think there's been a number of other stories about this that just the VAERS data is just junk. It's just like there's no validation to make sure that the that that the reporting there is accurate. It's almost like anybody can send in anything, and there are all these. Uh, they made a, you know they, the the Johnson Johnson vaccine was put on hold because out of an abundance of caution related to blood clots. But I mean, there's a there's a lot a lot of numbers related to accusations of myocarditis and inflammation. But that didn't stop vaccine distribution. Only the Johnson and Johnson one did. But they weren't even sure it was related to the vaccine whatsoever, or if it was just sort of. That's what happened, that, that there are a number of blood clots in, in a certain segment of the population. Again, it's junk. Uh, maybe the, the, that data set just people should just ignore before they, at some point, they need to revise it and make it reliable. In the meantime, it's nonsense. PCR tests are supposed to be, you know, kind of the gold standard for testing and that it, you know, more reliable than the rapid tests. But the inventor of the test, Kerry Mullis, has been, you know, gone on record that he's in the, if you look it up, there are the YouTube videos of him discussing the PCR test that they can find almost anything in anybody at any time. And this is related to PCR tests for AIDS that, and uh, there's a lot of, the skeptics definitely use this, his quotes quite a bit that, that to, to put some, some doubt into the system. I, I I cut myself off here that, you know, I, there's a lot of questions that can be asked about the PCR tests and how accurate they are. And you just, just because he, you know, somebody who's a major researcher says one thing, you don't, they can't necessarily make a lot out of that. It definitely, it's eye opening that he said all these things, but what can be made of it is, I don't know, bite my tongue on that one a little bit. The, you know, the World Health Organization has these statements about false positives with, with the PCR tests that have also sort of questioned how reliable they are and that there might be a, a huge issue with false positives with PCR tests. But in, I think there's going to have to be more information that comes out of it about, and this would be a good for a follow-up story about now that we have all this data about who is tested positive, and whether those people got symptoms or not and got the disease or not or died or hospitalized of the disease and whether they tested positive for it. That the questions about the disease, whether there is, you know, whether you test positive for it and whether they're asymptomatic conditions of the disease is a big issue that like, well, if you do test positive for it and you have no symptoms and you don't ever you don't go to the hospital for it, you don't, uh, you don't die of it, then does it really matter if you tested positive for the disease? Or is, is that also just a sign that, that it was, you tested positive, but it was a false positive? Because if you have the disease, it's like a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it. Does not make it, you know, uh, is it, is it really a tree falling in the woods? Does not make any difference? And it, that, that we may be uh, coming back to that one in a little bit, but a very interesting story there. Moving on to another international coronavirus story is one we have back from uh, July of 2020 is about how Europe is actually actually the leader in the number of the COVID death per capita rate. That is, the U.S. was getting a lot of t- attention and criticism from places like the World Health Organization about like their response and how people aren't the U.S. Uh, government isn't responding to it uh, as they should. But Europe is the one 
in particular, some particular European countries have the highest death rate from the disease, the number of people who have died from COVID based on the size of their population. Well, there's a couple of the micronations really stand out for this, like San Marino and Andorra, although those are kind of aberrations because they're, the population of those countries are so small and that you just need to have a small number of people die from the disease to like really skew the numbers. But some major European countries are not far off from there, like Belgium has the, the really high mortality rate from the disease, United Kingdom... Is, is number four, Spain's number five, Italy's number six. And overall, by region, Europe has the highest COVID death rate per capita with over about, it's like 1.8, as opposed to the Amer- in the Americas, and that includes South America and, and the United States, it's about 0.75. Same for Oceania. Asia and Africa are far below that with like down below like 0.25. For these, these countries where there's a lot of people dying, relative uh, to other countries. They don't particularly have a number, a large number of cases. There's no indication why relatively few cases would lead to a higher mortality rate. Like Belgium has a death rate eight times larger than Qatar while having one-sixth the number of cases. So Belgium, yeah, like just not a lot of people have the disease, but those who have it are dying from it. Eastern Europe is far below Western Europe for this. It's mainly Western Europe that we're talking about here. And the, the death rate for a confirmed case, like those who, of the, of the people that have the disease, that have tested positive and, and have died from it. Again, it's Western Europe is at the top. It's like France, France, Belgium, Italy, and the UK. Yemen is kind of an aberration that it has, it, that it's number one in, in the world, but it, that doesn't have, in, in general, there are not a lot of cases and a lot, not a lot of people dying from it, but if you do get the disease in Yemen, it seems like there's a high chance of you dying from it. So, but the chances of you getting the disease seem kind of low, whatever that means. And there's some other sort of uh, things that stick out there, like Chile has the largest infection rate in in the Americas, but the number of people who are dying from it's pretty low. At a time, uh, the United States was at sort of mid-range, kind of higher for the number of people dying from it. But I think that's a lot of that's changed. And and again, this you know this story is from 2020, so a lot of this has changed. But it's another sign of like how a how things were perceived in the news versus what what the actually the reality was. That I think you know maybe it's sort of like if you read the U.S. news, they're going to be talking about the U.S. and maybe the U.S. isn't doing enough. But in in Europe, maybe the 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 news is a little bit different. Maybe it's more critical of Europe as well. But for the U.S. to know that. Europe is kind of, at least by the numbers, having having more trouble with it. There's, I think there's also some questions about how much this has to do with life expectancy in each country. That like Africa really just didn't seem like it was affected by the coronavirus. Then again, you know, it's mainly something that affects the elderly over 65. And the, the, the over 65 population in a lot of African countries is just very low. So that so they're not going to be affected by it. Just the number of the potential population that could be affected by it is very low. So there's there's some factors in there. Moving on. So coming back to Rem Deceiver, the 
the Gilead Sciences, Sciences drug that uh, we talked about before that, you know, China said that it was going to patent the drug and, and, so, and give it to the whole country, and, but which was not exactly true. Later on, we find out that that, disease, that drug really had, that was considered a breakthrough had no significant clinical benefits. I mean, this is a big deal. It's, it's completely faded from attention at, right now. Nobody's uh, talked about that drug for at least a year or so, but it was a big deal at the time. And that that they were saying that it had a clear-cut, significant positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery, and it was trumpeted by Fauci. He really he he said this thing was you know a miracle. But based on preliminary uh, data, he was like they were going to try and the FDA was been working to sort of like speed it through the approval process and get it to patients as quickly as possible. But research in the Lancet uh, Medical Journal that the uh, speed to improvement given from the drug wasn't all that significant, and it was it was not associated with st- st- statistically significant clinical benefits, i.e., it wasn't doing very much of anything. No reduction in detection, no clinical improvement, no decline mortality or time to clearance. That's the time from when you know they they said that the person's pretty much you know free of the disease. And there was also additional to all that is that the treatment was stopped in the clinical trial more often for those than compared to the people that didn't take the drug because they are having some adverse events. Not a huge amount, but more so than the placebo group, which is, I mean, I think that might be acceptable if, if, that if the drug was doing a lot more, people would be like, oh, and, you know, maybe some adverse events, that's maybe some amount is acceptable. But uh, when it's not doing anything, that's really not great. It wasn't as big a, a study as the, the one that was like hyped a lot more, the ACT study, but it was about one-fifth the size. But again, even in the, the ACT study, the improvement wasn't that great. And Fauci even noted that the drug showed only a 31% faster improvement, which is not... Even, you know, you take that as the top lines, be like, that's, you know, here's, here's what it can do, potentially. It's not that, it's not that amazing. Although, and the, but Gilead was still saying that, you know, mass quantity of the drug are ready for distribution, but it might need a formal approval process. And again, you just don't hear about that anymore. I, you know, there's been a couple other drugs that have been talked about as cures, but, you know, getting into all the ivermectin stuff and things like that. But it doesn't sound like that anything's really come of that, that nobody, everybody's kind of forgotten about. And I'm pretty sure folks are working on it. I haven't kept up to date with it. It might be worth uh, coming back to for another story, but it's kind of fallen off the radar that people are just sort of managing, especially now that the coronavirus seems to be dissipating quite, quite a bit. But, but yeah, you don't hear about Remdesivir very much anymore. And then... And that's pretty much it. There's another story we had on uh, mask mandates and effectiveness of the mask mandates and quarantines based on each study in each state. But won't get into that one because it was. I think it was actually one of our weaker stories because again, it's like it's the number trying to put numbers to effective effectiveness of mask mandates is very difficult. You know, without knowing how often people are using them, there's probably a way to do it. But I think it's a, it's a little bit of a dirtier process that you would have to like sort of incorporate a lot of different data sets into to really make sure that it shows what what you think it shows. But that's pretty much it. I mean, that's we covered a lot there. There's a lot getting into clinical trial efficacy, mortality numbers, excess death rates, nursing homes, elderly populations, the effect of the flu compared to the coronavirus. 
a lot happened there. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of the numbers really just don't stand up with the, you know, sort of the mainline media headlines. And some of it's just sort of corrections of a, a little more information about what is actually going on when they say that like X number of people have died or what's the background? Like the fact that all these people were dying from the flu before coronavirus and what happened with the nursing home. So I hope it's been informative and look forward to, we'll probably have some more stories on the coronavirus, even if it's uh, fading from the news. I still think there's more still to be written about it.